Well, good morning to everyone. Hannah, do I have a picture up there first? Is there a picture first or not? Nope, there isn't? Okay. Well, this morning, I want you to imagine a picture with me for a moment. I, uh, I thought I had one on here, but I don't. I probably put it on and took it off because I had changed my mind. But have you ever seen somebody walking a tightrope? Has anybody seen that movie where the guy put the rope between the two towers in New York? Any, what, I forgot what it's called. Anyway, there's another guy that strung a cable across part of the Grand Canyon. Has anybody ever seen that? And the guy walked across it, and it's like a couple thousand feet. It's like an incredible amount. Um, once you're out there, there is this uh, particular quality you have to have, and that's called being all in, right? <laughs> I mean, it's now or never. You're not going to make it to the other side unless you have determined that, yes, I am walking the tightrope across the Grand Canyon. I can't stop now. Uh, there's really no rescue at this point. I, I, I am on my own, and I have to do it. I, I want to share with us today this idea of being all in. And I believe that God uh, is, is working in our lives, amen? He's working in all of us. We've sensed this for a while. And I believe it's time for us to step out and beyond, friends. And God has in mind for us in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, um, for, for great, such great promise. And, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering, how many have ever felt like you have uh, striven, you have worked, the more you've worked, um, it doesn't feel like sometimes you're seeing the promises of God um, like that you, you think you should, or um, you feel like the more you do it, the worse it gets. Um, I want to relate to us today that there may be parts of our lives, something in our lives that's actually blocking that. And, and I contend today that God wants his people to be all in in order to receive that kind of promise and blessing. And so today we're going to take a look at two big portions of scripture in Haggai chapter 1, and we're going to go verse by verse. So I don't know how they've got that broken up in there on, for online or whatnot, but um, it's verse by verse. So Haggai, or Haggai, I'm going to say Haggai this morning. I might say it the other way too, but um, is a very short book. It's between the two Z's, right? Zephaniah, Zechariah, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Ze Zechariah, Haggai, Right, we get it. <laughs> Zephaniah. So this wonderful little book has got incredible hope and promise in it, but also a very, very strong word for Israel. And in that context, a lot to say, but also to say to us this morning. So it's a book that's not often read. It's only two chapters long, uh, but I want us to take a look at it this morning. So Haggai chapter 1. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation for the Haggai portion. And for the Matthew, I'll be in the ESV again. And there's some reasons for that, but I don't want to get into it. But I, that's just where I'm going today. Um, on August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehazadok, the high priest. So there's some background here we need to stop and really grasp and understand. So the God allowed his chosen people to live in the promised land hundreds of years, right? They had lived there for hundreds of years, and, and God had given them 
the land, and they had been there, but they increased in their sin. And while they're there, they increased in the sin of idolatry, was huge. They worshipped false gods, other gods. They had all kinds of junk going on. They had intermingled with, with other nations and brought in their gods and worshipped them. They were deep into sexual sin. It was very rampant, and all kinds, they had forgotten to defend the defenseless. They had uh, set aside all of that. So their, their sin increased dramatically. Their biggest oversight was believing they could just push this off till later. The, the biggest problem was they were just going to make this wait, that uh, the next generation will handle this, or this person will handle this, or, or I can deal with this at a later time. So God is gracious, right? And in, oh, time and time again, we see this. If you've been in the Wednesday night classes, we went through the Bible. There's been this up and down with them the whole time. They, they see that at the very depths that there's great need, there's sin, and so a few people come together, and they have revival, and they uh, Godly king raises up and then over and over again, right? So, so God is gracious to them and they continue in their sin and he keeps pleading with them, right? He sends Isaiah. Isaiah comes and he says, hey, you know, this is not good. And then uh, Jeremiah, uh, during and uh, just prior and during their captivity, I mean, everybody, everybody knows the, uh, Jeremiah's story, Hosea, um, Amos, Obadiah. All of these prophets come along, and so the message was clear, and each one of them had this message, basically, return to the Lord. Come back to the Lord, and um, you would assume that they'd be like, okay, right, you're right, let's do that, but they don't. They don't. They just keep doing what they're doing. So eventually, God punishes them. He punishes them. God punishes his people, and he puts them into exile for 70 years. Thus, we get Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11. We love to quote it often. Uh, you know, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope in the future. Well, it's a prophecy for Israel in context that he is going to put them in bondage for 70 years. But he says, don't be afraid. I know I have a good plan for you. But the bondage is going to be horrible, by the way. You're going to be abused. All your stuff's going to be stolen, sold. You're not going to have any possessions. It's all going to be taken from you. And you're gonna, some of you are going to die. I mean, that's not really a very happy promise, is it? It's a promise, though it is. So anyway, Solomon had built this most expensive real estate, and it was torn down, the temple. So after 70 years, God was gracious, and he allows them to come home. And they come home, and the house of God is in ruins. The problem is, they come home after being in captivity, and they sit around for 16 years, and they don't touch the house of God, only rebuilt the foundations of this place. So Haggai comes along right here after 16 years. So you got the context, right? Haggai comes up right in this portion of the prophecy. They returned home. Uh, during that time, they constantly sinned. They had sinned and become used to living in their sin, idolatry, sexual immorality, oppressing the poor, and uh, uh, not enforcing justice. And so that's the whole background. So Haggai comes on the scene, and he has a prophecy. They've, been, they've come back after 70 years. They've been sitting on their can for 16 years, and they've been doing other stuff. And he's about to get into it, verse number 2. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So God is expecting them to return to worship when they get back. Rebuild the temple and get back to business and giving him honor. After 70 years, you would have thought that they, they would have wanted to do that. And they come home, 
sitting around 16 years, simply built the foundation. And the temple is no small structure. Now, it's 90 feet wide and 180 feet long, 50 feet high. Some context. Our entire church property, from 30 feet beyond this wall to the edge of the parking lot by the fence, is 240 feet, okay? We have a small property. We have 23,000 square feet total. I mean, we're, per capita, our church is the biggest church in town. Yeah. Praise God, right? <laughs> and our church property is 99 feet from this part, including not including the easement from the city of Lakewood to 111th Street right out here. So we have 99 by 240. Well, the temple is 90 by 180. So basically it could sit on the entire church property with sidewalks on each side and a driveway at the end maybe. That's the size of this place. It's good size. But for context, your typical Costco is probably 120,000 square feet. So, I mean, this, this place is not nearly that big, but nonetheless. Um, so there's this enormous amount of work to do, but for 16 years all they've done is simply rebuild the foundation. So verse number three. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses where my house lies in ruins? Now, this is the message and the part of the prophecy that gets very convicting. He gets right to it. I mean, after kind of who he is and where he's coming from, he tells us, hey, you've done something horrible here. And God is speaking through him, through him and he's, he's saying, hey, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this picture. There's something wrong with this equation. Uh, you're living in your luxurious homes. You have media rooms. You have uh, game rooms. I mean, in our modern context, right, you have a man cave and a she shed, um, right? Okay, so you have all sorts of clothes. You've got all this stuff that you've got, all sorts of toys for your kids galore. You're spending all this money on this. You have two or three cars. You have all these different things. You have furniture. You've got expensive artwork, whatever, right? Your life, all these things have been a priority for you. And in your house, but somehow or one another, the most important thing, the worship that is due my name through my house has not been rebuilt. To rebuild my house, my temple, to make it a priority, to make my house, my worship, the most preeminent thing for your life. My house, my dwelling place, my resting place. And this, this isn't something that seems to be at the top of your list. He, he's rebuking them strongly. You're busy building your own empires and your, your own stuff. Well, my house lays in ruins. Verse number five. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat and are not satisfied. You drink and are still thirsty. You put on clothes that cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear although, uh, as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Have you felt that way? <laughs> I mean, have you felt like you're working harder and harder than you've ever worked in your life? Maybe you feel like you you doing all the things you can for your career, all the things you can for your money, your relationships, all the things that you can do and give for your kids, and nothing seems to be working right. 
You were hoping everything would fall in line. And friends, this is hitting home with all of us, me included. And you're trying to put all this effort and all this work into all this stuff. And you're feeling like, God, where is your peace in the middle of this storm? God, where is your provision in the middle of my need? And you're saying, God, I'm, I'm trying, I'm striving, I'm doing everything that I can. You try to save money maybe, and, and it, nothing seems to be able to work. You just can't do it. He says to the people here in Israel the same thing after they've returned to Jerusalem. But he says, you're trying to find satisfaction in things, in your food, in your clothes, in your houses, and in, in even relationships, and all these different things. And no matter how hard you try to be satisfied with all of this stuff, everything that you've invested and you've tried to find some happiness, there's just one constant disappointment after another. You can't get filled up. So God's not done. I mean, that's heavy, right? I mean, I feel it this morning. Do you feel it? It's like, ugh. But in verse 7, look what he says. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Look what's happening to you. So notice he says, hey, stop for a second. Stop all of your labor. Stop all of your stuff. Stop everything you're trying to do. And pay attention to what's happening around you. This is not eternal. This is not normal, too. Notice what he says here, verse 8. Now go up to the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He says, stop focusing all of your energy and all of your strength and all of your attention on your careers. Stop focusing on everything else except me. Stop focusing on anything else except for me. Stop doing all this stuff. Go up to the mountains and, and get some wood, get some timber, and, and rebuild my house. Put me first rather than second, rather than third, rather than at the end of the line, rather than after your family, rather than after your spouse. God is first. There the, used to be that song years ago, Honey, I love you, but you're number two. <coughs> Jesus is first. Somehow we get it in our minds and our psyche, friends, in this world. We're going to have contentment if we have the right husband or wife. We're going to have contentment if we have the right house. And the whole time God is saying, stop me first. Isn't it interesting? We can find so much free time to do all of these other things we have, we've set for our lives. And somehow when God wants time with us, we have something else to do. When God wants us to serve in our church or to serve our church family, we have something more important to do. When God wants us to pray, he's second. When, when God wants us to share our faith, we want something else. When God wants us to give, we have some other priority for it. Somehow or another, it's not yet the time because... We're busy building our own houses and empires rather than the house of God, he says. And he's talking to Israel, and if that's not convicting enough, he, he continues in verse 9. He, God gets more, more profound here. He says, you hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. 
And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies. While all of you are building your own fine houses, can you see the message that God is trying to get across? He's saying, I want you all in. I want you all in. He wants priority in our life. He says, I want to be first. I want to be preeminent in your life. I want to be the one in charge. I want you serving me to be the highest priority in your life. I'm God. And I have the right to expect that. <laughs> I mean, he's a creator, right? He has the right to expect that. He's a lover of our soul. And God says, you know what? I'll stop at nothing to try to get your attention. Even if it means I have to blow your riches away and allow certain things to happen in your life that will put me first again. I'm going to allow it. Now, this is probably the most convicting part of Israel, the message to Israel. Look at verse number 10. Look at what he says. Look at, this is what God says. He's talking to Israel now. He says, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills. Notice your fields and hills. Not to the wicked, not to those that don't serve him, not to those that are, that, are, that are not lovers of him. Come on now. This is not easy. Look at what God is telling Israel. I am withholding this from you, believer. This is not preached. And, but God is saying it. I'm going to starve you out and your livestock and ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Not a popular t message, I think, in today's Christian American church, but today's message said God has a blessing for you. All you have to do is just pray and, and give and praise God, and all things will change. But ironically, that's the, the, the part about them we claim Jeremiah's prophecy again. And Jeremiah is in the middle of all this, or right before Haggai, right? He's, he's you know, just not that far down the road behind him. So this is what God says. I have in mind for you a correction, a change in your priority because I want you all in. I want you all in. The reality is that God is saying, you know what, if you don't put me first, there may be some blessings that I want to pour into your life that are being held up. Why? Because I'm not first. Because I am not first. Your career is first. Your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend are first. God says, I want to be way first. I mean, this is, this is called being distinctly radical for Jesus. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a calling to put aside everything that, that we own and all that we are and the talent that we possess and the wealth that we hold and say, Jesus, you, you, you are first. Now, we got to understand the stop theological interpretation. What's the situation? Situation is that 
there back home. What type of literature is this? Is historical lit literature. Um, um, the O, who is the object of the message? It's Israel in their time, 570 BC, 520. And here. Uh, Oh, is it prescriptive or descriptive? P. Well, it's descriptive because it's about them. So we can't take everything from Scripture and say, well, because God did it for them or to them, he's going to do it to me. The context helps us understand the principle, but this one is historical. The part about this that's so, so profound, though, Jesus says the same principle in the New Testament. But here, there's a message here. And the message we learn from this historical account is that how God responds to his people. God always Has God changed? No. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how he's responding to them because of their reaction to him. So we see how he actually causes circumstances and instruments of correction for their lives. And, and why does he do this? Because the principle of what this historical account teaches us, because is that God wants to be first because the Bible is unlike any other book that we read, right? I forgot my water here. The Bible is not like the Lord of the Rings. The Bible is not like the Hobbit. The Bible is not like some other uh, fictional or non-fictional work in that we don't read the Bible. The Bible reads us. It's backwards with the scripture because this is God's word. And when we read it, we identify our present spiritual condition compared to the truth of principles that God has in his word. And we measure our lives by it, how we need to walk in that truth. So the Bible reads us when we read it. That's why it's so important. God says, hide your word in, my, in your heart so that I won't sin against you, David writes, right? Why did he say that? Because he knows that the Bible reiterates how to live and how to walk things to love and things to enjoy, how to give and how to have correction and disciplines in life and how to have the fullness of joy and shows us how to proceed. It's an instruction manual. And so that's what's happening here. So I want to ask you, could it be that in the last few months or, or even years, perhaps possible that your whole life that you have not been honest with God in this regard? Could it be that you've never been all in? You've never really put God first in your life. Oh, we like to come, and we're young people especially. We come, we like to worship, or we like the music. You know, I always did. You know, I, I'm a big music guy. I, you know, I, was, I always loved Petra when I was a young man. Adonai, master of the earth and sky, you alone are, I mean, and rockin' and, you know, John Schlitt and Greg X. Volz. And, and I would be singing and worshiping, and I'd come to church, and I'd have, oh, man, I love that. But, you know, when it come to the word part, when it come to how to live, it's like we categorize God, right? We come to church, and we pick the things that we like. And then we, we hear his word or we read his word and we say, oh, that's not for me. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to give that way. I don't want to serve that way. I, I, I just, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I'm going to pick the things from God's word that I like. 
I like it when we can come and when we can sing songs and we clap and we're happy. I like it when everyone's smiling at me and, and they're giving me the greeting and fellowship time and we have lots of food at church. Those are my favorite parts. Now, I just love them, right? Those are the times when we get together and everybody smiles, but the parts are travailing at the altar or, 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 or living by God's word or, or forgiving that person or, or, or paying my tithe or, or, or surrendering my will in this area or giving to missions or serving on a trip. or uh, That's just, you know, that's, that's, a part of, that's the part of the buffet. I'm just going to fill up on all this fatty stuff. I'm coming to God's buffet, and I'm picking the chocolate cake and the desserts, and, you know, I'm going to ignore the vegetables. In real life, that's what I want, though. I want all the stuff to make me trim, and my body is my temple. It's my temple, not God. So I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do all the stuff because, ah, I'm going to have good hair. And I know I'm not talking about me. <laughs> Obviously, you know, right? I jiggle in ways you don't want to know. But there are, there, are, there are priorities that we place. Friends, this is the point of contention we don't like. We, we say, yeah, I read that, but does it really mean, for me it doesn't mean that I, I, I'm walking in sexual sin because I look at that. For me, it just doesn't mean, you know, that my covenant in marriage is not important. It, it doesn't mean, it just doesn't mean that, that I have to be like you, Pastor. Praise God, you don't. But the good parts we may see in other believers are like, yeah, I know they're striving for God in this area, but, you know, that's just not, I'm not, I'm not going to be that kind of Christian. We don't measure ourselves by others. We read the word, and it reads us. And this is the priority that God sets. He says, he says to them, I'm withholding blessing because you're not all in. Friends, there are many ways that we all struggle. There's always been, though, perhaps someone or something or a career or relationship or family or our bodies or whatever that's been more important to you than your relationship with Jesus or the truth of his word. When you stand before him on judgment day, Will he ask you about that? Are you ready for those questions? You'll say, I'm saved by his grace. Well, certainly that may be true. I just don't know what other questions he may be asking. Now, here's the challenge to just go hard for God and put him first. I want to believe that if you put God to the test and you put him first, my friend, and I can say that he's going to bless you. I don't know what kind of blessings. That's not for me to say. It's for no preacher to say. But when you put him first, he is the one that gives it out. I know that much. And he's a loving father. And after hearing this, God speaking so bluntly and so carefully to Israel, we take away something valuable, something powerful that God gives and God takes away. He does. Perhaps the most important thing of all is that God requires something from us in order to receive his very best from our lives. It requires for us to be all in, which I believe is a call to a big priority shift. But this idea doesn't stop here with Haggai. Let's turn to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. This scripture, by the way, has come up 
in the week before, week and a half before, and several different, through several different people in my life, as I was preparing this message, this was already, actually, I was going to start with this, but I, I put it here later because it's New Testament. I want to compare the old to the new. So it's interesting. God is speaking to us, his people, about something in this time that we live. Verse 25, Matthew 6, look at what Jesus says. Words you probably know well if you've been in church very much time at all. But I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Oh, boy. Can we just stop there for a moment? Can I have an extra five minutes? Okay, 30 seconds. Do not be anxious about your life. How much anxiety do you have in life? Why? Maybe God's not first. Yeah, we have anxiety that's going on in our family. And, and those are, they're tough not to look at and say, I don't have any anxiety at all, right? But the priority of our anxiety is to give it to the Lord. About your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Oh, there's so much there. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither, they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? I, I went to lunch with somebody here a while back, and, and they're up in years in their life, and they're looking toward the end of their life in this world, possibly, unless the Lord comes back soon. And it was a tear-filled conversation because they realized that, you know, they're, they're 82, and they're saying, I, I don't think I'm going to live 20 more years. Well, this person probably will. They're so fit, I don't know. But, man, we don't have to fear death, do we? We don't have to fear it. And you know how hard that is to say from somebody who's 50-something to somebody who's 80-something? It's easier for me to say, right? It is. But those that are facing that moment, there's a lot of story to be told there. There's a lot of truth that you and I are going to face. All of us are going to face it unless the Lord returns soon. We can't add our, any hours to our life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Oh, my goodness. Can we just put the pause on right here for a second? It wasn't that many years ago we were talking about kids killing kids over a pair of Nikes, right, in the street in Chicago, half in New York, different places in L.A. It was it's like a frequent thing. Uh, how we look. We have to look a certain way. We have to have this aura about us. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his um, glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, then how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek it. In other words, the unbelievers care about this stuff. If we care about this stuff, how much more are we identified with those that don't believe in Jesus than believing in Christ and trusting him? If we have anxiety over these kind of issues in our life, and these things are more important to how we look and what we wear and the kind of car that we drive, and the investment portfolio, and the kind of house that we live in, if these things are more important to us, if we're anxious about these things more than Jesus, that there's a problem. Verse 
verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its trouble. In other words, each day has enough trouble of its own. So what does it mean then to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness? It means a call to be all in. It means a change of priorities. And there's two things that Jesus says, seeking first the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? How are we supposed to seek the kingdom of God? Well, what kind of priority is that supposed to be for our life? What is there that should cause such a shift in our life to where we would seek the kingdom of God above all other things, our time, the, the best of our time, the best of our money and affections? So the kingdom of God is the territory where God rules, right? He is the supreme leader, and everything is under his authority and his protection and in his will. John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. He was speaking, of course, in the significance of salvation of Jesus, but the kingdom of heaven was significant. Remember when they asked um, Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, hey, don't worry about the times. Or his, his, his answer was very gracious, by the way. Don't worry about the time or seasons. My father knows all of these things. Instead, really be filled with the spirit is what he said. Jesus is there. That's something about the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit is there. So we seek Jesus. We ask him for a spirit. The kingdom of God has a king. So we seek the king. If we're to seek first the kingdom of God, we seek the king and the will of the king and the desire of the king. The question comes how we live and how we're serving the king or how we worship and what we worship like. like. Are we worshiping ourselves? Is the priority for our lives us? It's so easy for Christians to turn me off right now. To turn Jesus off right now for sure. To turn God right off. I would rather do anything than listen to what's being said right here. Because what's being said right here is to seek first Jesus above my stuff. <laughs> seek his righteousness is the second thing. What is righteousness? What is righteousness is everything he is. He is right. He's not off. He's, he's right. You know how when you put a level on a wall, you get it to where it's right. Before you put it in place, it's got to be square. It's got to be plumb. It's right. His righteousness is truth. There is no other truth. There's not your truth even. My truth is that I get to pick and choose what I want to believe about God rather than what he says about himself. But the truth is there's only one truth. He says to live right, right? A holy life, he calls us to, is not a burden or a cliche. It's the only way to, to live. His words are right. They are righteous. The power that called everything to be. He is creator. He is Right, seeking his righteousness means to compare the way I seek his holiness. It means to compare the way I spend my money to his righteousness. 
It means to compare the things I listen to and the things that I say compared to his purity and his goodness. It means to say the things uh, about, compare my relationships to his purity and holiness and his holiness and righteousness to my life in every measure. In other words, we can never measure up. Aren't you glad for his grace? And his grace also says, turn from where you're going and go the other way. God was gracious for Israel for a long time, hundreds of years before he finally sent them in. And the, the sliver of time compared to hundreds of years to 70 years in captivity is a very low, small correction in comparison. God is gracious with every one of our lives here. And he will allow small interruptions to get us to look back at him. God really says that you need me. God's words are direct and clear to understand. And God says, I, I want this. I need that. Uh, you know, God says, I want you to be this. Not for us to say, I need this. Or make me stronger, God. David Wilkerson rebuked that sentiment in the church because it was raising steam years ago where the church began praying, God, make me strong. And the whole, sit, the whole purpose was that God says, no, I want you weak so that I can do my stuff in your life. I want you to become weak in my presence so that my glory can be seen. Because then you can say, I didn't do this. God did. God provided for my need. God healed my body. God took away this pain. God restored the relationships in my family. God did that. Can you see how Christendom has changed? That we don't really cry out any longer for, for maybe the strength to endure, to endure upside-down crucifixion like Peter. Or to stand on the stand as Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, as the noose was tied around his neck because he would not deny the Lord. I contend that we have no idea what it's like today, friends, in our American church when we're 5% of the population in the world. When you cannot, be in a, you cannot really be a Christian in China of one billion people. Where if you're 18 years old or younger, you can't go to church. Any kind of church. It doesn't matter. That means a whole generation of young people knows not the Lord at all. You consider it nearly impossible in India now where there's such great missions efforts going on. But nonetheless, there are places where, where pastors are being dragged out and beaten and their families are being killed. And in Muslim countries, 60 nations in the world, they're taking these guys out. 100,000 martyrs last year alone. In our world in America, we're, we're saying, God, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, fill me, fill me, fill me, fill me. Five percent of the population, the rest of the world is starving. Europe has gone to hell in a handbasket. They are so unchristian and so progressive now. There's no end in sight to the insanity. If we look at the world through the eyes of Jesus, we've got to realize the place we have come has become so far away from the provision of God. We don't even know what that looks like anymore. Because the provision of God says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, not your stuff, not your bless me's, not make me this, not make me stronger, but just him. Can we get a hold of this? We may not like it because we're listening to tickling things that tickle our ears all the time with made up truths about from preachers that have large ministries and say stupid stuff. Russia's sponsored churches preach foul stuff to align with its doctrine and the ways of its people, and, and the people are suffering. Most Christians in the world may suffer persecution in ways that we may not understand. 
I don't know if we can really fathom it. Well, we say in America, God, I want more, more, more. I want a bigger house, God. I need just that right relationship, God. I need just this, God. I need just that. Don't get me wrong. God is not unconcerned about the needs we have in our life. But friends, the radical abandonment of what we want is what God requires. Are you hearing me? Please don't get caught up in the noise of this world and the sound that it makes. The beat of the drum and the smells and the sights and the sounds of the entertainment that has caused, has caused the Christian church to be drawn into its rock concerts rather than its worshiping of Jesus. In the mid-80s, a great leader, Bill Bright, at Campus Crusade for Christ, had a dream. And his dream was that he saw perestroika. He saw tear down this wall. He said he saw that communism would come to an end, the wickedness that was driving out the gospel rather than embracing it. And he said it would, there would be an uprising, a, a revival of it in the West he didn't live long enough to see what's happening today in America, where our young people are actually clamoring for communism. They're actually clamoring and wanting the progressive ideologies that are built upon sinful and wrong concepts of Scripture. Turning away from the things of God. Friends, are, are we catching this? You say, Pastor, this is Christmas. We're supposed to be talking about Jesus' birth and all this stuff. Make us happy. But friends, this is what makes us happy. Jesus was born. And he calls us to know him. He calls us to seek him. Instead of crying out, Lord, our Lord and Savior, keep us, help us from persecution, our crying has become, Lord, please don't let it rain for today's game. Right? God, prosper me this way or that way so that I might be encouraged and comfortable. God, I think, friends, I think God's purpose is to make us wholly uncomfortable. It's time to get the priorities straight. It's, it's all in or nothing. Haggai's prophecy and the words of Jesus go hand in hand. They're, they're, they're both to know God's ways that are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And the provision that we miss or that we don't see in our life is because we are misfocused. Our priorities are amok. They are awry. We are trusting in things in this world to bring us satisfaction, Lord. And some are saying, Pastor, I don't even know what you're talking about. What does that look like? I, this, is, this is unfathomable to me. You're telling me I'm not going to heaven? I never said that. I'm saying that in this time, God's looking for a church to raise above, to be a counterculture, not just a subculture, to be the people of God, to live as God has called us to live. But we can ignore this. We can push it aside and we can say, oh, this isn't real. But it's all in or nothing. Keith Green said, sang the song years ago. You know, Jesus rose from the grave and we can't even get out of bed. Right? And it, he said, if you don't come to me every day, don't bother coming at all. This is the kind of preaching we used to have in America. This is the kind of stuff that brought real revival. And then there was real joy because we gave it all to Jesus. We confessed our sin of, of too much. We confessed our sin of excessiveness. We confessed our sin of, of wanting all the things that fill our appetites. And we came to the Lord, and then there was joy. There was real laughter in the altars. 
Because we said, Jesus, I give up all that I am because I am nothing, you are everything. Why should God require this? Because he knows that every chain is breakable. And you and I are sitting right here this morning. Here's the key. Here's the punchline. Here's the key to it all. You and I right now, friends, are sitting here this morning, and some of us have regrets. Some of us have things in our life we know that we're bound to. Some of us have things that we know that we need to get rid of. And i got to tell you, 2023 is more is, is, is not just a statement that I'm saying to you this morning. We've got to be all in in order for anything in our lives to happen. Some of you are shrouded with, with guilt and regret. I know what that's like. Can I just share this with you? There was a time in ministry here not that many years ago where I was running a, a business and I had all these employees and I had all these jobs going. I had at least 25 jobs, well, at the most, 25 jobs going at any one time. 25. I had 100, nearly 100 subcontractors that I worked with constantly. My life was on the road. I worked from my truck. I was running here and there, making my guys, making sure everything was, and I was pastoring this church. And I would come home, and dinner would be on the table, and the boys would be playful. They'd wrestle me when I came in the front door. And I'd sit on the table, and I would just be gone. They'd be laughing and telling jokes and, and, and cutting up and being boys. And I would just sit there just absent. I know what regret's like. I know what regret is like when you failed in that sin over and over again. You don't feel like you, you can break the chain. Well, I got to tell you, our priorities, it wasn't until God got a hold of me and changed my priorities. He interrupted all that divinely. When he interrupted that, then I began to see clearly. I could breathe. I, couldn't, I didn't care if the church couldn't pay me enough. I was just going to quit all of that, and I was just going to have time to think. And it, life was too overwhelming. I, I couldn't, I didn't have time to think. And we may be sitting here today and we may have regrets, we may have failures, we may have things that we would hold on to, sins that we can't break from, relationships that we're in that we don't think we, how to heal between our, our children or our... We have all this stuff. And the only way, the only solution that I can see is, is not better preaching or or more presentation, or more programs at the church, or, or a daycare, or, a, you know, or not this or that. Or It's about God's people saying, okay, I'm going to be Christ's ambassador in this world by walking in freedom. And people are going to see that freedom, and they're going to want it. And how is that going to be possible? It's going to be possible because I'm all in now. I've laid Larry down I've laid my stuff down. I've put it all behind. Lord, I want to be all in. I don't want anything holding me back. Everything for you, Lord. This has been pressing on me and welling up in me because God is, I believe, going to change the tide, turn the corner here. At Abundant Life, and he needs leaders, all of you. As Paul said, to join with me in the work of the ministry. And friends, the beginning of that work is walking in the freedom that Christ has afforded by being all in. 
what regret, what pain, what sorrow, what lack of provision, what, what sickness, what things are holding on in your life that God is using. And you've been 16 years maybe doing your own way, doing your own stuff, building your own, trying to heal it all by yourself. And God's saying, wait, stop, stop, just stop, just, just stop, just trust, just put me first. Let's stand and pray about it, shall we?